Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of July 23rd. As always, for my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And, uh, you know, it's been really hot here in New York City. Kind of feel like uh, summer is here and the time is right for fighting in the streets, boy. <laughs> uh, did it occur to you how many revolutions we celebrate in July? Well, most obviously, there is Independence Day. And as stupid and jingoistic a holiday the 4th of July has become, and believe me, nobody hates it more than I do. It, uh, you know, does have its origin in a revolutionary moment when the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia and the throngs filled the streets and tore down the statue of King George III. And uh, then we have Bastille Day, July 14th, marking the start of the French Revolution, I would hope that that is not as stupid and jingoistic a holiday in France as Independence Day is here in the United States. And then we have July 19th, just four days ago as I now speak, which it just occurred to me this week actually marks three different revolutions. The start of the Spanish Revolution in 1936 the victory of the Nicaraguan Revolution in 1979, and the beginning of the Rojava Revolution in Syria in 2012. Isn't that interesting? All celebrated on the same day. And there was an anarchist element to all three of these revolutions. Most uh, strongly in the first, of course, and of course I've spoken about the uh, the experience of Spain in the 1930s, a great deal over the course of this podcast. It's kind of a uh, historical episode that we keep returning to, as it holds a lot of lessons for a lot which has happened since then. And uh, wanting to get up to speed, I thought that I should do a uh, discussion of the start of the Spanish Revolution 86 years ago this week. I was doing um, some digging through my books and papers and stumbled upon the report that I wrote way back in 1986 on the Spanish Civil War and Spanish Revolution for Empire State College, which is like the um, independent study program in the SUNY system, State University of New York which being the, uh, you know, inveterate anarchist that I am, <laughs> is how I earned my BA way back in the 1980s. And reviewing this paper that I wrote, it occurs to me that it's uh, pretty damn good as a uh, overview with some editorializing on the role of the anarchists in the Spanish Civil War and the Spanish Revolution, which uh, began simultaneously on July 19th, 1936. So uh, I'm just going to read it into the record here on the podcast. Some of you already be familiar with this history, but uh, for those of you who aren't, it's um, a good overview, I think. And for those of you who are, you might learn a little something that you didn't already know. 
and because I wrote this back in the, uh, the mid-1980s, I follow the historical narrative with a little discussion of the situation in Central America, and particularly Nicaragua, and where the lessons of the Spanish Revolution apply there. And uh, afterwards, we'll have a little bit of discussion about um, the lessons of the Spanish Revolution and how they can be applied to the current world situation and much that has elapsed in the um, intervening years, including those other two examples, Nicaragua and Rojava. All right, so I'm going to read what I wrote back in 1986, just 50 years after the start of the Spanish Revolution. Spanish anarchy. The popular concept of anarchy as violence and chaos is not the concept held by most of those who call themselves anarchists. For anarchists, anarchy means political decentralization. Economic structure is based on mutual aid and free association, rather than competition and exploitation. Spain, in the 30s, fit both definitions. Calling the conflict of that era in Spain the Spanish Civil War obscures the fact that it was also a Spanish Revolution, a highly unique revolution which was, unfortunately, aborted. In a sense, the revolution was sacrificed to the Civil War. This brings home what is perhaps the primary self-contradiction in revolutionary anarchism, with a stated goal of a society free of militarism and centralized authority, and a theoretical rejection of any dichotomy between means and ends, the Spanish anarchists nonetheless found participation in militarism and centralized authority to be an inevitable consequence of maintaining enough power to make any difference. And I'm just going to briefly interject here that, like I say, I wrote this way back in 1986. Not everything is worded exactly the way that I would say it today, but I'm just sticking with what I wrote at the time. Okay. The beginnings. No country on earth has ever had a stronger anarchist movement than existed in Spain in the 30s. Anarchist organizing in Spain first began in the 1870s, when Spain was targeted by the Russian aristocrat revolutionary Mikhail Bakunin, Marx's chief rival in the international and the primary theoretician of revolutionary anarchism, or anti-authoritarian collectivism. After a military rising drove Queen Isabella into exile in 1868, Bakunin deemed Spain ripe for rebellion and sent several of his disciples to the country, most notably the Italian revolutionary Giuseppe Fanelli. Fanelli was a highly successful organizer. Spain became the only country where the ideas of Bakunin triumphed over those of Marx, and anarchism developed into a major movement. Fanelli particularly inspired a young printer, Anselmo Lorenzo, who eventually became Spain's representative to the international. Lorenzo faced down Marx at the international's 1871 conference in London, mere months after the Commune had been declared in Paris. Apparently feeling threatened by Lorenzo's uncompromising Bakuninism, Marx immediately after the conference dispatched his son-in-law, Paul Lafarge, 
to divide the Spanish movement by forming a political party. The attempt met with little success. Embryonic anarchism had already firmly taken hold in Spain. The peasants' protests and occasional uprisings of this era were overshadowed by dubious reports of a secret organization called the Mano Negro, Black Hand, which allegedly conspired to murder landlords and overseers and destroy crops and property. In parts of Spain, any violent crime was linked to this mysterious organization, although the actual existence of La Mano Negro was in question the authorities used it as an excuse for massive arrests of workers and peasants, which succeeded in weakening the revolutionary organizations. Thus were above-ground organizations forced to become clandestine. In the 1890s, as Spain lost the last vestiges of its overseas empire to the USA, anarchism began to resurface. Actually far more concerned at this point with laying the educational groundwork for a mass revolutionary movement than with terrorism, the anarchist movement began founding free schools, or modern schools, where libertarian cultural values were taught. Concepts such as atheism and free love, which did not mean mere promiscuity, but rather equal and non-possessive relationships between men and women, and keeping the church and state out of one's personal life by resisting legal marriage, were extremely radical in Spain at that time. The Catholic Church had great power, and the economy and agriculture had not progressed much beyond feudalism. In many ways, Spain lagged several generations behind the rest of Europe. By the turn of the century, the monarchy had been restored, and King Alfonso XIII had made an alliance with the military. The internal contradiction in the anarchist movement was brought home when an anarchist broke up the royal wedding of 1906 by throwing a bomb. The king and queen were unhurt. The bomb thrower killed himself. The subsequent inevitable repression of the anarchist movement was concentrated on the modern schools. The bomb thrower had actually been a teacher at the modern school of Barcelona, headed by the most influential anarchist educator, Francisco Ferrer. Ferrer jailed after the bombing, began to see the general strike as a more effective method of social change than bomb-throwing. After his release, Ferrer returned to Barcelona and the modern school. Barcelona and the entire region of Catalonia, of which Barcelona is the capital, was developing into a stronghold of both anarchist and separatist sentiment. In 1907, the Barcelona anarchist weekly Solidaridad Obrera, Worker Solidarity, was founded with Anselmo Lorenzo as editor. Bombings became frequent, especially at the meeting places of Catalan nationalists. The government blamed the anarchists for the bombings, and the anarchists blamed government provocateurs. The situation reached a crisis in 1909, when the rebellion erupted in Spanish Morocco, in response to the construction of a mine railway, which was seen as an encroachment on local sovereignty, the Spanish government called up the military reserves to quell the revolt. The Moroccan campaigns had always been unpopular in Catalonia, and spontaneous demonstrations broke out at the port in Barcelona as the reservists were departing for North Africa. Solidaridad Obrera called for a general strike, 
and soon the Spanish government had yet another uprising on its hands. Troops entered Catalonia, and martial law was declared. After the uprising had been repressed, the official press took up a smear campaign against the modern schools and placed the blame for the uprising on Ferrer. Ferrer was arrested and tried, with government witnesses providing false testimony that he had directed the uprising from the barricades. In 1911, two years after Ferrer's execution, the verdict was posthumously reversed. In the face of such repression, the movement began to see the need for a national organization. Lorenzo and Solidaridad Obrera called a conference which was attended by representatives from nearly every region of Spain. It was at this conference that the CNT, National Confederation of Labor, was founded. A trade union based on the theory of revolutionary syndicalism, which called for social transformation via the general strike and the free association of trade unions eventually replacing the government, it soon became a rival of Spain's other major trade union, the UGT, General Workers' Union. The UGT had been founded 20 years earlier by socialists and was generally less extreme than the CNT. Eventually, the CNT and the UGT began to cooperate with each other. A national general strike in 1917 resulted in the jailing of Largo Caballero and other socialist leaders. A Catalan general strike against the electric company in 1919 brought soldiers to the streets of Barcelona yet again. Although these actions gave the movement a sense of its own growing power, the cycle of strikes and repression eventually brought about a period of violence known as the Pistolerismo, in which anarchist militants and the goon squads of the rich industrialists regularly exchanged fire. Barcelona, both an anarchist stronghold and an industrial port, was obviously plagued by the Pistolerismo. Many anarchists saw in the Pistolerismo an attempt by the German espionage network to disrupt Catalan industries, which supplied the Allies. Solidaridad Obrera printed exposés purporting that leading right-wing pistoleros were German spies. It was in the pistolerismo that such influential anarchists as Buenaventura Duruti first surfaced. Duruti was a member of a group of pistoleros known as Los Solidarios, which tried to assassinate as many right-wing assassins as possible. The right-wing pistolero groups responded by assassinating yet more influential anarchists, including CNT officials. Apparently mindless of the vicious cycle, the Solidarios continued to believe that the best way to counter the right-wing terror was to kill all of his masterminds. This culminated in the Solidarios' assassination of the Cardinal Archbishop of Saragossa, who was widely believed to be supporting the right-wing pistoleros. Deruti and fellow Solidario Francisco Ascaso were forced into exile, where they embarked on a career of anarchist organizing and armed expropriations, such as bank robberies, to aid modern schools in Cuba, Mexico, and Argentina. They were thrown out of country after country in Latin America and Europe as they awaited a revolutionary opening which would allow them to return to Spain. 
This opening was not to be imminent. In 1923, a military coup installed General Miguel Primo de Rivera as dictator of Spain with the de facto support of King Alfonso XIII. Solidaridad Obrera was shut down and the CNT was forced to go underground. Even the publication of newsletters became a clandestine activity. In the midst of such complete and unprecedented repression, many anarchists turned to such individualist tendencies as mysticism and vegetarianism or organizing around such permissible causes as teetotalism. Gatherings were held in remote mountain regions to celebrate nudism and intone against alcohol and tobacco. However, sometimes the back-to-nature tone of these gatherings served as a cover for the exchange of underground periodicals practicing marksmanship and concocting plots and explosives. One such outdoor excursion on a Valencia beach in 1927 gave birth to the Thigh Federation of Iberian Anarchists, a militant organization which began to organize cells throughout Spain with an eye towards destabilizing the dictatorship. By 1929, the movement had started to emerge again. Students organized campus revolts and strikes broke out in Barcelona. King Alfonso, sensing the impending storm, instrumented the removal of General Primo de Rivera in January 1930. He was exiled to Paris, where he died later that same year. Solidaridad Obrera, the CNT, and countless other political organizations and parties which had been banned by the dictatorship began to reform or emerge from the underground. Spain's government became politically restless and internally divided. The army criticized the king for accepting, or, as some claimed, forcing, Primo de Rivera's resignation. Meanwhile, many in the Cortes, the Spanish parliament, which had been inactive throughout the dictatorship, claimed that the king had violated the constitution by accepting Primo de Rivera's dictatorship in the first place. Eminent intellectual Jose Ortega y Gasset declared, Delenda est monarchia, Latin for the monarchy must be destroyed. Even the church would not wholeheartedly come to the defense of the king. In April of 1931, the king consented to general elections and the monarchy was defeated. Alfonso XIII abdicated to avoid, as he put it, somewhat exaggerating his own importance, the disaster of a civil war. Five years later, there would indeed be a civil war, but it had less to do with monarchy versus democracy, although that was an element of it, than with the interest of the church, the landowners, and the military against those of the workers and peasants and liberal intellectuals, and the conflict between regional rights and centralized authority. The New Republic took some steps to reconcile these contradictions. Laws were passed calling for land reform, military reform, and the curtailment of the power of the church. This made the liberal Republicans nearly as many enemies on the left as on the right, because these laws were seen as ineffectual compromise measures. There was debate within the CNT as to whether or not to support the Republic. Buenaventura de Ruti, back in Spain and working with the FI, was a leading proponent of non-collaboration with the Republic.
The Phi came to be seen as the political wing of the CNT trade union. There was much overlap in the membership of the two organizations. However, the Phi had a much more purely anarchist political line. It advocated direct action to a greater extent than the CNT and a little tolerance for talk of collaboration with the Republic. The CNT was also organized along more traditional lines with elected officials and regional representatives, while the FI was made up of loosely structured and highly decentralized grupos de afinidad, affinity groups, and claimed to have no leaders. It did, however, admit to having influential militants, which was taken by many to be a euphemism for leaders. In any event, the CNT helped save the Republic by organizing paralyzing strikes when General José San Jorge attempted a right-wing coup from Seville in 1932. San Jorge was sentenced to life imprisonment, but he later escaped to Portugal, where he awaited his chance for another coup and a return to Spain. The FI continued to pressure for a general strike, which would bring down the Republic and establish Communismo Libertario, Libertarian Communism, rather than merely head off another military coup. When a railway worker strike loomed in 1933, the CNT Phi saw this as an opportunity for a general strike, since the railways would not be available to facilitate troop movements. The plot proved to be a fiasco. The railway strike was called off at the last minute. Secrecy was poorly kept, and the civil guards and newly formed paramilitary assault guards wasted no time in detaining those who were to lead the rebellion. The key figure of Garcia Oliver turned up in a routine police check of a car in Barcelona. In those towns where the red and black flag of the anarchists had been unfurled and Communismo Libertario declared, chiefly in Andalusia, another region of great anarchist influence, the repression was swift and brutal. The prisons were filled almost instantly. Leaders and influentials were tortured. The most infamous incident took place in the small Andalusia hamlet of Casas Viejas. The insurrectionists took refuge in the hut of an old man nicknamed Seis Dedos, Six Fingers, with a tribe of children and grandchildren. Even with the hut surrounded by assault guards, the insurrectionists refused to give up and continued to resist until dawn, when the assault guards hurled grenades, torches, and gasoline-soaked rags at the hut. Insurrectionists, as well as children and the elderly, were killed in the ensuing blaze. The assault guards then hunted down and shot many of those who had escaped. The Casas Viejas repression was recognized as an atrocity throughout Spain. The captain of the assault guards was brought to trial, and his defense was the eternal defense of military butchers everywhere. I was only following orders. The dubious accusations of complicity went up the chain of command until the administration of Prime Minister Manuel Azaña was implicated. Azaña resigned, and the CNT advocated a boycott of the ensuing elections. The right gained power. The following year, the CNT and the socialist UGT, cooperating again for the first time since the fall of the dictatorship, organized a miners' strike in the northern region of Asturias. The government called in General Francisco Franco, 
who had cut his teeth in the Moroccan campaigns to quell the strike. Once again, the prisons were filled, local leaders and influentials tortured. The land reform and anti-clerical laws were repealed, and those imprisoned in connection with San Jorge's abortive coup were granted amnesty. The socialist leaders were all imprisoned, because Astorius was more of a socialist than anarchist stronghold. It was the socialists who bore the brunt of the repression after the miners' strike. Largo Caballero, the secretary of the UGT, spent his time in prison reading, apparently for the first time, the works of Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and underwent something of a political conversion. He was soon to become known as the Spanish Lenin. The next elections, in 1936, returned Azania and the left Republicans to power. All those jailed in connection with the Astoria strikes were freed. General Franco was dismissed from his position in the war ministry and dispatched to command forces in the Canary Islands, which he saw as an exile. Before he departed, he warned Prime Minister Azania of the dangers of communism and asked him to reconsider the exile order. Azania did not budge, and Franco left for the Canaries, committed to the idea of a military coup to save Spain. The agrarian reform was resumed once more, and the culturally and linguistically distinct regions of Catalonia and the Basque country were granted semi-autonomous local governments. But the right was growing increasingly restless. General San Jorge visited Nazi Germany, while monarchists visited with Mussolini in Rome and were assured of his military support in the event of a coup. The left and right were once again engaged in a downward spiral of assassinations and counter-assassinations. Three days after a leftist lieutenant of the assault guards was killed, his fellow officers took vengeance on the monarchist leader Calvo Satello, who had recently openly declared himself to be a fascist in the Cortes. With the death of Calvo Satello, the right had found the martyr whose sacrifice could serve as justification for a coup. The War and the Revolution In July of 1936, the right-wing conspiracy went into action. General Francisco Franco declared martial law in the Canary Islands and then flew to Morocco, where he joined General Yagüe and took command of the Army of Africa, Spain's colonial military, mostly made up of Moorish troops, Meanwhile, General Capo de Llano and General Mola rose in Seville and Navarre, respectively. General San Jorge, the mastermind of the coup, was killed when the airplane carrying him to Spain from Lisbon crashed in Portuguese territory. Once again, it was the CNT, which, in part at least, paradoxically, saved the Republic. In many regions, the working class, organized by the CNT, rose in response to the military rising and demanded guns from the government. The Republic equivocated, but anarchists procured guns by taking over barracks, hunting equipment shops, and military supply ships. In Barcelona, the military rising was crushed within 36 hours. That is to say, a day and a half, so on July 21st. By the end of July, Catalonia, the Basque country, Valencia, the Levant, 
and the area of Castile around Madrid were still under civilian control. Aragon, including the anarchist stronghold of Saragossa, bordering Catalonia on the north, Astorias, Andalusia, and Extremadura were divided. The generals were clearly surprised that their coup was not immediately successful throughout Spain. However, throughout the course of the ensuing war, the Republic never succeeded in gaining any more territory, with the exception of one city, Teruel, in Aragon. One obvious explanation for this failure is the perennial problem of factionalism on the left. The various political forces which supported the military rising banded together under the nationalist coalition and were willing to compromise on the finer points of their political differences, precisely because discipline and obedience to authority were central points in all of their ideologies. On the other hand, the anti-fascist forces, the Republicans or the Loyalists, seemed to spend almost as much time shooting at each other as at the Nationalists. For the anarchists, obedience to authority was the very antithesis of their political ideology. The Nationalist forces consisted of the military, the church, the uh, SEDA, the Catholic Party, standing slightly incongruously for the... Um, Spanish Confederation of Autonomous Rights, the Monarchists, and the Traditionalists. Also called Carlists, the political descendants of those who had supported Don Carlos de Borbon as a pretender to the crown in 1834, when it was deemed that the monarchy was actually becoming too liberal, the Traditionalists were even more fiercely conservative than the Orthodox Monarchists. At the right of the nationalist forces was the powerful Falange, an openly fascist paramilitary organization which had been founded under the Primo de Rivera dictatorship by the general's own son, José Antonio Primo de Rivera. Under the Republic, the Falange had emulated Hitler's brown shirts and Mussolini's black shirts and taken responsibility for attempting to eliminate leftists from the army, the civil guards, and the assault guards. It was the Falange that had fueled the spiral of assassinations, which led to the death of their own sympathizer, Calvo Sotelo. The Falange was now a highly influential wing of the nationalists, with important connections to the generals who were vying for power. Eventually, all of these political tendencies accepted the hegemony of General Franco, especially after both of his rivals, first General San Jorge and then General Mola, were killed in separate and suspiciously convenient airplane accidents. The anti-fascist forces, in contrast, were hopelessly fragmented. The liberal Republicans, socialists, pro-Stalin communists, anti-Stalin communists, Basque separatists, Catalan separatists, and anarchists were in fact engaged in a bitter power struggle with each other throughout the course of the war. At their best, they viewed each other with extreme suspicion. In fact, the use of the term Republican or Loyalist to refer to the anti-fascist forces is actually somewhat misleading. By no means were all of the anti-fascist forces loyal to the Republic. 
the anarchists, while extremely instrumental in crushing the coup in their strongholds, essentially saw the Civil War as an opportunity for a working-class revolution against the Republic. The Republican coalition, with the socialists on the left, were the ostensible leaders of anti-fascist Spain. However, they quickly lost control to the anarchists in some regions, Catalonia and Saragossa, even while maintaining the outward facade of token authority there. They also allowed themselves to come more and more under the influence of pro-Stalin communists, who were in turn under the influence of Moscow, and basically sought to purge the anti-fascists of irresponsibles, most notably the anti-Stalin communists and anarchists. Although numerically small at the start of the war, the communists, aided by the Agpu, Stalin's military intelligence organization, wasted little time in infiltrating the most influential circles in the UGT and other socialist organizations. These internal rivalries laid the groundwork for the civil war within the civil war, which was really the civil war eclipsing the revolution. Many liberal Republicans viewed themselves as trapped between extremist forces on the right and left alike, which were bent on destroying democracy, cynically viewing the dialectic of pistols, which had been accelerating between the Falange and the anarchists before the outbreak of the war, with accusations of provocation on both sides. Some liberal Republicans referred to the Phi as the Phi-Lange, Fascism and anarchism were the extreme opposites of the entire Spanish political spectrum, yet many agreed with the philosopher José Ortega y Gasset, who essentially saw them as two aspects of the same problem, which he termed the revolt of the masses. There were specific cases which could be pointed to, such as that of Ramón Franco, the general's brother, who became a nationalist pilot and participated in the bombing of Barcelona. Five years earlier, he had been a fiery, some said demagogic, anarchist. Many Republicans obviously feared anarchist revolution as much as a fascist victory. Anarchists refused to see any dichotomy between the civil war against the fascists and the revolution against the Republic. For the anarchists, the liberal Republicans were defenders of the very exploitative social system and economic order which had given rise to fascism in the first place. And the destruction of that social system and economic order was the only way to ensure against future fascist uprisings. While the socialist slogan proclaimed, first the war and then the revolution, the anarchist slogan proclaimed, the war and the revolution are inseparable. One common criticism was the Republic's handling of Morocco. Spanish Morocco had fallen to military control almost instantly and served as an essential launching point for nationalist incursions into Spain. An obvious step to weaken nationalist control of Morocco would have been to declare the Spanish colony independent. This step was never taken by the Republican government. Although ideologically distinct, the anarchist and the anti-Stalin communists found themselves united by the threat of their common enemies. 
the Republicans and the pro-Stalin communists when the government crackdown on irresponsibles began in 1937. In Catalonia, the anarchists found themselves in an alliance with the PUM, the Marxist Party of Worker Unification, an anti-Stalin communist organization labeled by its detractors Trotskyist, even though Leon Trotsky had publicly disavowed the group. The regional Catalan government obviously supported the Republic. The Basques, although traditionally very conservative and strongly Catholic, also supported the Republic. The Basques had no love for the Republic's leftist anti-clerical politics, but they realized that a nationalist victory would mean the destruction of any hope for Basque regional autonomy. The Basques did not, and still do not today, consider themselves Spaniards. The nationalists wanted all of Spain under the strict central control of the Castile. For the Basques, the Civil War was not so much a conflict between nationalism and the Republic, as it was between Spanish nationalism and Basque nationalism. The Basque country, along with Asturias, was isolated from the rest of Republican Spain by areas of nationalist control. When this isolated northern region fell to the nationalists, first the Basque country, then Asturias, the Basques accused the Republic, with some justification, of selling them to the fascists by depriving them of adequate arms and support. Undoubtedly, the Republic did consider the defense of the Basque country a low priority to that of such politically and geographically central areas as Madrid. With all of these internal divisions, the Spanish anti-fascists were ripe for manipulation by external forces, with a world war obviously on the horizon. It seems both cynical and short-sighted that none of the Western European democracies came to the aid of the Spanish Republic, even after Germany, Austria, and Italy had succumbed to fascism with little resistance. Britain and France organized a non-intervention agreement among the European big powers, which barred assistance to either side in the Spanish Civil War. Only Mexico, itself recovering from several decades of turmoil, openly supported the Spanish Republic. Mexico's arms shipments were more important as a symbol of support than as actual military aid. The non-intervention agreement was rendered farcical by one-sided compliance. Britain and France, ironically hoping to avert or forestall the increasingly inevitable Second World War, sent no aid to the Republic, while Nazi Germany and fascist Italy were not so scrupulous. The fascist powers sent guns, advisors, and even troops, somewhat euphemistically called volunteers. Fascist intervention was especially evident in the most brutal, unprecedented, terrifying, and effective aspect of nationalist strategy, aerial bombing. It was the German Condor Legion which led the devastating airstrikes on Madrid and the Basque holy city of Guernica, while Italian aircraft were involved in the bombing of Barcelona, Britain and France turned a blind eye to massive fascist aid to the Spanish nationalists. In the USA, President Roosevelt passed a law banning arms trade to either side in the Spanish conflict, but this half-hearted embargo applied only to war industries, 
other U.S. industries maintained commerce with nationalist Spain, as they did with Nazi Germany until the outbreak of World War II. Throughout the Spanish Civil War, the nationalist military machine was supplied by the Texas Oil Company, later renamed Texaco and today owned by Chevron. On the other hand, the U.S. Communist Party organized volunteer brigades, most notably the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, of U.S. citizens who were willing to defy the law and risk their citizenship as well as their lives to go to Spain, receive military training, and fight for the Republic. A generation later, in the anti-communist hysteria of the 50s, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade veterans would be blacklisted for having been prematurely anti-fascist. Leftists in European countries also organized volunteer brigades to aid the Republic. The Garibaldi Brigade, made up of Italian exiles, took great pride in fighting Italian fascists in Spain. But the international brigades, like the Mexican arms shipments, were most important as a gesture of solidarity. They could not hope to offset the nationalists' overwhelming asset of the support of the Rome-Berlin Axis. When the Soviet Union agreed to send aid to the Spanish Republic, there were political strings attached to the aid, strings which exacerbated the Republic's internecine rivalries and intrigues. With the purge trials of the old Bolsheviks raging in Moscow, Russian policy was becoming the product of Joseph Stalin's political paranoia a paranoia which was fueled by the entirely legitimate fear of Nazi Germany. On one hand, Stalin was attempting to create a popular front by which Russia could unite with European democracies against the fascist threat of the Axis. Thus, the entire pro-Moscow world communist movement ceased to see the British and French democracies as the enemies they had been before and would be again in the not-too-distant future, although Stalin still had a long way to go in winning their trust. Thus, for the Popular Front scheme to work, the victor in the Spanish conflict would have to be capitalist democracy, and not a revolutionary movement which would be seen as a threat by Britain and France. The irony is that Stalin's agents in Spain were willing to use completely undemocratic tactics, to suppress those irresponsible forces which would interfere with this scenario. On the other hand, it was widely theorized that Stalin supplied only enough arms to keep the war going, enough to prevent a nationalist victory rather than enough to ensure a Republican one. Many believed that Stalin was intentionally prolonging the Spanish War as a means of buying time until he could either get Britain and France on his side or make a separate peace with Hitler. Perhaps it is significant that a mere three months after the nationalist victory in Spain, Stalin would sign a non-aggression pact with Hitler, and the both of them proceeded to carve up Poland on mutually agreeable terms, thereby starting World War II. It was also widely theorized that the U.S. and British non-intervention in Spain, was the result of a strategy by which President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Chamberlain hoped to allow Hitler and Stalin to destroy each other without getting the Western democracies involved, except afterwards to pick up the pieces 
and claim whatever territory was up for grabs. If Chamberlain hoped that Britain would be a detached observer to the Second World War, he too must have sought to prolong the Spanish War, in which Hitler and Stalin's surrogate forces were battling it out. In any event, it is clear that while Europe's democracies did nothing to defend democracy in Spain, Communist Russia did everything possible to crush revolution in Spain. All of the positive things that one associates with the word communism, revolutionary idealism, the struggle for a classless society, were the things that the Spanish communists were working against, with the exception of the few anti-Stalinist groups like the PUM, while all of the negative things that one associates with the word communism, censorship, purges, espionage, torture, were things that the Spanish communists vigorously pursued, again with the same exception. For instance, the Republic's intelligence organization, the SIM, Military Investigation Service, largely organized by AGPU advisors from Moscow, was an important tool in the Republic's 1937 crackdown on political opponents within the anti-fascist ranks. The SIM routinely engaged in such bizarre tortures that many termed the crackdown the Second Spanish Inquisition. It was argued by many, especially the anarchists, that this crackdown, the suppression of the Spanish Revolution, cost the Republic the Civil War. For the anarchists, with the rising of the working class against the rising of the military in July 1936, the long-awaited moment of the Social Revolution had finally arrived. In Barcelona, after a day and a half of street fighting, the military rising had been crushed. Wealthy industrialists and landowners fled Catalonia for nationalist territory or France. Farms and factories were collectivized in villages throughout Catalonia. The red and black flag of the anarchist was unfurled. Communismo libertario was declared as money, property deeds, and religious artifacts were burned in huge bonfires in the center of town. President Luis Campanis of the regional Catalan government was forced to concede that the real power in Catalonia was not with him, but with the CNT-5. In the weeks and months that followed, the most obscure and the most inspiring aspect of the Spanish drama unfolded. At last, the anarchists' definition of anarchy, i.e. libertarian communism, became a reality. In Barcelona, the railroads, the urban transit system, the telephone system, and the water, gas, and electric utilities, all of which had been privately owned, and most of which had been abandoned by their owners as they fled, were all collectivized, as were most industries, from textiles and munitions to hairdressers. Those industries owned by foreign capital were deemed too dangerous for complete collectivization because of the threat of foreign intervention. In these cases, a compromise measure was reached in which the industry was placed under workers' control, with workers' councils advising the management on such issues as prices and wages. This was seen as an interim phase until complete collectivization could be worked out. Militias for the Aragon Front were organized by region and political affiliation, by Catalan unions and organizations such as the PUM and the CNT-Fi. In the Catalan countryside and that of civilian Aragon, 
villages formed agricultural collectives and began to cooperatively work the land. Those ex-landowners who had not fled or did not normally live in Madrid or even Paris, as they collected rent on their lands in Catalonia or Aragon, were given the choice of either joining the collective like anyone else or being given a small plot of land that they could work as individualists. Anyone had the option of individualism. The collectivization did not take place at gunpoint. Many villages abolished money and worked out their own system of credit. Some villages began to print their own money or vouchers that would be honored by the local collectives. Many collectives established the family wage by which salaries were designated by how many mouths each worker was responsible for feeding in accordance with the utopian communist principle from each according to his ability to each according to his need. As the Catalan revolutionaries were debating whether to collectivize or eradicate prostitution in Barcelona, the central government was becoming anxious to maintain control over civilian Spain and was starting to view the situation in Catalonia uneasily. The socialist Largo Caballero became head of the republic, while figures such as the charismatic communist leader Dolores Ibarori, or La Passionaria, tried to maintain a spirit of solidarity by constantly intoning the ubiquitous slogan, which she is credited with inventing, No pasaran! They shall not pass! The course of events moved along so swiftly that the anarchists were simply swept up in the trend toward political centralization. In September of 1936, the CNT accepted an invitation to join the Republican government over the strenuous objections of Buenaventura de Ruti and most of the FI. The CNT leader, Juan Garcia Oliver, became the Republican Minister of Justice. Fifteen years earlier, he and de Ruti had both been gunmen in Los Saladarios. Now they were at opposite ends of the anarchist spectrum. Another CNT official, Federica Mancini, became the Republican Minister of Health. She saw her collaboration with the Republic as worthwhile, if only to have the power to disseminate information on birth control, abortion, and divorce throughout civilian Spain. All of these things had been legalized to some degree since the fall of the monarchy, yet few Spanish women were aware of these options. In October 1936, the Republic made another move that was bitterly resented by many anarchists. A decree was issued calling for the militarization of the local militias and their incorporation into a popular army with a centralized command. Those militias which resisted would be withheld arms. Deruti, now leading a column of anarchist militias at the Aragon Front, hardly had time to protest this move before he received word to come to the defense of Madrid. The seat of the Republican government was relocated to Valencia as nationalist troops penetrated the outer defense line of Madrid. Deruti was killed in the intense Battle of Madrid. The massive demonstration at his funeral in Barcelona was a clear indication of the degree of anarchist power in Catalonia. The aerial bombardment of Madrid indicates that Germany viewed the Spanish war as a test war. Spain was the proving ground for methods of warfare that would later be used against the Allies. 
hindsight reveals an eerie prophetic element to statements made by journalists at the time of the Madrid bombardment. D. Buckley, an English journalist, wrote, It is possible that within five years, the nations of the world will undergo the pounding which Madrid suffered in 1936, because in this world, everything is paid for. The Peruvian journalist, Cesar Falcón, foretold, London, Paris, and Brussels must see in the houses destroyed in Madrid the women and children who have been massacred their own future when fascism attacks them. In the final paragraph of his war memoir, Homage to Catalonia, George Orwell writes of returning to England from war-torn Spain and feeling out of place among the familiar streets. The poster is telling of cricket matches and royal weddings, the men in bowler hats, the pigeons in Trafalgar Square, the red buses, the blue policemen, all sleeping the deep, deep sleep of England, from which I sometimes fear we shall never wake till we are jerked out of it by the roar of bombs. He wrote that in 1938. Adding dark sarcasm to chillingly accurate prophecy, Orwell decried the fact that the warmongering politicians and propagandists are not the ones who have to fight and die. Sometimes it is a comfort to me to think that the aeroplane is altering the conditions of war. Perhaps when the next great war comes, we may see that sight unprecedented in all history, a jingo with a bullet hole in him. The civil war within the civil war broke out in Barcelona in May 1937. Political tension had caused the cancellation of the usual May 1st celebration, and a few days later, Republican civil guards attempted to take over the CNT-controlled Barcelona telephone exchange, touching off several days of street fighting. Anarchists, in an ad hoc alliance with the PUM, erected street barricades as they had in July of the previous year. Only now, the enemy was not the fascists, but the Republic. The Catalan regional government reasserted itself by attempting to crush the anarchist resistance with the aid of the central government, which was sending its own troops to Barcelona. Anarchist response ranged from CNT officials such as Garcia Oliver, who called for the anarchists to lay down their arms in the name of anti-fascist solidarity, to the Friends of Deruti, an extremist FI cell that called for the establishment of an anarchist dictatorship. By this seemingly contradictory term, they presumably meant that the CNT FI should seize control of the entire Catalan economy and militia and eliminate all of their political rivals. They demanded the disarming of the civil guard. Eventually, compromise measures were reached, and a CNT radio broadcast on May 8th proclaimed, Away with the barricades! Back to normality! But over 400 had been killed in the Barcelona riots, and things did not return to normality. The prominent Italian anarchist Camillo Berneri had been murdered. Shortly thereafter, the PUM leader, Andre Nin, mysteriously, or perhaps not so mysteriously, disappeared without a trace, and a campaign was launched, complete with forged documents and other dirty tricks to discredit the PUM as fifth-column fascists. To explain this phrase, General Mola, when asked by a reporter which of his four columns would take Madrid, 
responded that it would be a fifth column of secret fascist sympathizers behind Republican lines. Nor was the Poom allowed to defend itself. Its publications were ordered closed by the Republican government. The May riots also seemed to bear out the contention that if the revolution went too far, it could provoke intervention from foreign governments with investments to protect in Republican Spain. As the Barcelona riots reached their climax, three British warships had closed in on the city's harbor. Largo Caballero was profoundly disturbed by the repression of the PUM and CNT-5, and it became evident to the communists and the Republican government that if the purge of irresponsibles was going to continue, Caballero would have to be dispensed with. It was fairly easy for the communists to instrument Caballero's ouster by manipulating the internal rivalries between the Spanish Lenin and his more moderate socialist counterparts with whom he had a bitter enmity going back many years. After Caballero had been replaced by Juan Negrin, the anarchist withdrew from the Republican government, with ex-minister Monsigny publicly attacking the government repression and the Moscow tyranny. The worst was yet to come. In the fall of 1937, immediately after the harvest, Republican troops entered Aragon, attacking the anarchist agricultural collectives of Saragossa. Anti-collectivist repression in Catalonia would follow. It is needless to point out the irony that Juan Negrin's economic plan, backed by Moscow, essentially called for the restoration of capitalism throughout Republican Spain. Anarchists continued to fight on the front and were instrumental in the taking of Teruel, the only city gained by the Republicans throughout the war. But in terms of political influence, the anarchists were quickly losing ground. Early in 1938, Teruel was retaken by the nationalists as the Republican front began to collapse in Catalonia and Aragon. Caballero faced yet another ouster, this time as secretary of the UGT, a position which he had thought permanent. The UGT subsequently moved in a more moderate direction. The CNT, hoping to maintain some degree of political influence, formed a pact with the UGT, a move which was, of course, bitterly protested by the FI. Another point of contention between the CNT and the FI was whether there was anything in the Negrin government worth supporting. Anarchist opinion was swayed toward the FI position when Negrin began considering seeking negotiations for a truce with the Nationalists. However, when a coup was finally organized against Negrin, it was more a question of replacing him with someone who would be able to wrest more agreeable terms for a Republican surrender, rather than someone who would continue to struggle to the bitter end. The bitter end seemed inevitable anyway. Madrid was devastated, if still under Republican control. The real fifth column, which had nothing to do with the Poom or the anarchists, had come to life and snipers were everywhere. Nonetheless, anarchists widely supported the anti-Negrin coup and the subsequent formation of the National Council of Defense, which represented the armed forces, all trade unions, and political parties. As the nationalists completed their takeover of Catalonia, sending a flood of refugees into France, yet another civil war within the civil war broke out in Madrid as the Negrin government was destabilized. The National Council of Defense took power just in time to negotiate a surrender and organize an evacuation before the nationalist troops entered Madrid 
and the city's pro-fascists who emerged from the basements and foreign embassies where they had been hiding to cry, "An pasado! They have passed. For the anarchist militants, this was the second defeat. They were losing the civil war to the nationalists and fascism in 1939, after having lost the revolution to the Republicans and Stalinism in 1937. The aftermath. For all of the elements of the nationalist coalition, any form of left-wing thought, from liberalism to anarchism, was an unspeakable heresy. Anarchism, which called for free love and the gutting of churches, was the most unspeakable heresy of all. Although no reprisals had been one of the terms of surrender, there was ample reason to fear the worst, and thousands of socialists, communists, and anarchists fled the country for France or Mexico. Many of those who settled in France, like Largo Caballero, would be persecuted by the Vichy government and died in Nazi concentration camps. Even before the occupation, Spanish refugees in France were herded into internment camps and treated like criminals. France, like Britain and the USA, recognized the Spanish nationalist government almost immediately. The only big power which failed to do so was the USSR. In Spain, an awesomely complete militarization and centralization was underway. Political parties were banned, publications closed down, Republican leaders were imprisoned, officers of the Republican Popular Army shot, the hegemony of the Catholic Church and social life was reestablished, birth control, abortion, and divorce returned to their illegal status, regional autonomy of Catalonia and the Basque Country was rescinded so completely that even the Catalan and Basque languages were outlawed. Anyone caught speaking them publicly faced imprisonment. It was the kind of social order that could be expected from a movement that proclaimed Viva el Muerte, long live death. That idiotic barbarism had actually been a popular phalangist chant. With the outbreak of World War II, Spain sent a blue division of several thousand phalangist volunteers to aid the Nazi invasion of Russia. Spain also supplied Germany with war materials, monitoring services, air bases, and submarine bases. But for most Spaniards, the 40s were not so much a time of war as a time of poverty and dictatorship, the aftermath of war. Franco kept Spain from becoming embroiled in the war and actually turned to Britain for a loan for reconstruction of the devastated Spanish economy. Franco filled the ministries of his government with the leading generals from the Civil War. He resisted reestablishing the monarchy, partially because of a personal feud with Don Juan, the Spanish prince and son of Alfonso XIII, but managed to keep the monarchist content with promises. The monarchy was restored with Franco's death in 1975, when Juan Carlos, grandson of Alfonso XIII, ascended to the throne. After decades of Franco's dictatorship, Spain was ready for the establishment of a strong democracy and hoped to join the other Western European nations in their prestige and prosperity. Leftist trade unions and political parties, reorganizing after Franco's death, 
accepted the reestablishment of the monarchy because it was concomitant with the reestablishment of parliamentary democracy. The CNT and the UGT were among the groups to reemerge upon Franco's death. The CNT is still going through a profound reevaluation of its role in the new Spanish and European political landscape. The CNT has actually split into two organizations of the same name. The CNT, which still adheres to libertarian values, is questioning the effectiveness of the organization as a labor union and is pushing for an extension into community organizing, while a rival CNT is calling for mainstream trade unionism, including the acceptance of government arbitration and greater collaboration with the state-controlled system of collective bargaining. Since the restoration of democracy, most organizing on the radical left has been in opposition to Spain's membership in NATO. Protest has been widespread since Spain joined NATO in 1982. The current socialist administration of Felipe González favors NATO membership. Remember, I'm writing this in 1986. U.S. troops were first stationed in Spain under an agreement made with General Franco, and today there is much pressure to cut back on the number of these troops. Franco's legacy has not been completely destroyed. Since his death, there have been two attempted military coups, one in 1979 and one in 1981. The Spanish intelligence network has remained untouched since 1975 and is the same organization that it was under Franco. It clearly has greater loyalty to the military than to the civilian government. Espionage units created under Franco, such as the Centro Superior de Información de la Defensa, still have members who are important figures in the fascist Black International, along with their Italian and Portuguese counterparts, and the strongmen of the powerful South American militaries. Again, this was back in 1986. Presumably they're all dead today. During the trial of those officers responsible for the attempted coup of 1981, all of the judges in the case were subjected to constant surveillance and harassment by agents of the Centro Superior. The clandestine investigation, which included phone tapping, may have been an effort to dig up information that could be used to blackmail a judge into finding a verdict favorable to the principal figures in the rebellion. If so, the attempt failed. The plotters of the coup still sit in prison. But the Spanish intelligence network has had more than enough to keep it busy for many years with events in the Basque country. If the socialists emerged from Franco's reign, more moderate and politically sedate, the Basque separatists went in the other direction. After 30 years of Franco's fierce repression, not only of their political organizations, but of their very language and culture, the Basque separatists in the late 60s abandoned their traditional conservatism and formed a clandestine guerrilla organization along the lines of the Irish Republican Army, the ETA. The acronym stands for the Basque words for Basque, Homeland, and Liberty. Still extremely active today, the ETA has been carrying out an almost constant string of assassinations since its formation in 1968. Its targets are almost exclusively military and police officials and wealthy businessmen. In June of 1986, the ETA assassinated the mastermind of the attempted coup of 1979. The major had served only one year in prison. Seeing no end to the violence, the Spanish government recently declared an amnesty program hoping to lure ETA militants into laying down their arms. However, the Basque leaders and Amnesty International 
maintain that torture of ETA suspects continues, only somewhat abated since the death of Franco. Beatings and the use of electroshock devices are cited. The autonomy moves, which were mandated by the new constitution drawn up in 1978, have been sufficient for the conservative Basque Nationalist Party to move away from a separatist stance. Today, schools and street signs in the Basque country are bilingual, but the leftist ETA and its legal political arm, Eri Batasuna, remain overtly separatist. The Heritage Quote, Fascistas no pasaran. The fascist will not pass. Republican slogan, Spain, 1936. Quote, Yankees no pasaran. The Yankees will not pass. Sandinista slogan, Nicaragua, 1986. Quote, Reporter, how do you feel personally about private citizens getting engaged militarily in what is happening in Central America? President Ronald Reagan, it's quite in line with what has been a pretty well-established tradition in our country. Nothing was done legally about the formation of a brigade of Americans in the Spanish Civil War. If you get into the moral issue of it, we were certainly tested with regard to the Spanish Civil War that I mentioned. I would say that the individuals who went over there were, in the opinions of most Americans, fighting on the wrong side. End quote. Interview with Scripps Howard News Service, October 25, 1984 with Ronald Reagan saying that the uh, Abraham Lincoln Brigade had been fighting on the wrong side. To the best of my knowledge, this is the closest that any U.S. president has ever come to an admission of fascist sympathies. This statement and Reagan's V.E. Day 1985 visit to the Bitburg Cemetery, where officers of the SS are buried, indicates that there are forces in the U.S. government which are making their peace with fascism 40 years after the Allied victory. And I'm just going to interject here that uh, I just can't get my head around the fact that when I was writing this back in the mid-1980s, it was 40 years after the end of World War II, and that another almost 40 years have elapsed since then. That just to totally blows my mind. I can't even get my head around that. All right, to return to the text. <clears throat> the heritage of the Spanish Civil War is alive in the Americas. In Latin America, there have been far too many, like Chile's Pinochet, Paraguay's Stroessner, Argentina's Videla, who have emulated Spain's Franco. South America has only recently begun to emerge from a long nightmare of military terror. Chile's Salvador Allende, who, like Largo Caballero, sought an electoral path to socialism, was killed in Pinochet's right-wing military coup, which was organized with the aid and direction of the CIA. Latin America's revolutionary Marxist governments, Cuba and Nicaragua, are in some ways similar and in other ways dissimilar to the communists of the Spanish Civil War. There is no longer a popular front to be organized, so the Latin American Marxists need not worry overmuch about being palatable to Western democracies. However, Cuba in the early 60s and Nicaragua in the mid-80s have been drawn into accepting all of the political strings which are attached to the guns and aid from Moscow. They have been drawn into this position by relentless attack from the United States, much as the Spanish Republic was drawn into the same position 
by the fascist attack. The current situation in Nicaragua is replete with historical ironies. Recently, the right-wing opposition distributed a Spanish translation of a well-known parable of betrayed revolution. The Sandinista government responded by attacking its author, who was no longer alive to defend himself as a counter-revolutionary. The book is Animal Farm, and the author is George Orwell, who also wrote Homage to Catalonia and fought in the Spanish Civil War, both at the Aragon Front and in the Barcelona riots of May 1937 as a member of a PUM militia. Unlike the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War, and despite the claims of the Reagan administration, the Sandinistas do not have an anti-clerical ideology. Priests have been expelled from Nicaragua, but they have been expelled for being vocal anti-Sandinistas, not for being priests. Abortion remains illegal in Nicaragua, and there are Catholic priests in important posts in the Sandinista government. As Marxists and adherents of Catholic liberation theology, the Sandinistas portray Augusto Cesar Sandino, the revolutionary martyr from whom the Sandinistas take their name, as a Marxist and liberation theologist. In reality, he was neither. Spiritually, he flirted with theosophy and Eastern mysticism. Politically, he was influenced by anarchism, which he came into contact with via the Mexican labor movement when he worked in the Tampico oil fields as a member of CROM, the giant Mexican trade union, which included IWW leadership, both the CROM and the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, had large anarcho-syndicalist elements. When Sandino returned to Nicaragua after three years in the Tampico oil fields to organize his legendary insurgency against the occupying U.S. Marines, he fought under a flag whose colors were red and black. This was the early 30s, just when anarchism was approaching the peak of its power in Spain. Sandino signed a peace pact after the last of the Marines had left Nicaragua. That same day, in 1934, he was shot dead by Somoza's National Guard, which had been trained and organized by the Marines. Decades later, the Sandinistas claimed Sandino's red and black flag as their own. Thus today, a Moscow-aligned Marxist government in Nicaragua flies a flag with the colors of anarcho-syndicalism, a flag which, with a few minor differences, is essentially the same as the flag that was flown by the CNT-5 in the 30s. Sandino had looked forward to settling down after the departure of the U.S. Marines on an experimental cooperative farm he had established on the Coco River, a farm which he envisioned as a model for the rest of Nicaragua. The day after his death, the cooperative was attacked and destroyed by the National Guard. This scenario has obvious parallels in the Spanish experience. Farabundo Martí, the Salvadoran revolutionary martyr of the 30s, from whom El Salvador's leftist insurgents, the FMLN, Martí National Liberation Front, take their name, was also strongly influenced by anarchism even if he was more Moscow line than his Nicaraguan comrade, Sandino. Like the anarcho-syndicalists, Farabundo Marti saw the general strike as a powerful tool for social transformation, and he gave his life 
organizing the Salvadoran general strike of 1931. However, the FMLN leadership has no anarchist element. It is Marxist and sees Cuba and Nicaragua as models to be emulated. The Salvadoran general strike of 1931 was met with almost unimaginable repression. The troops of dictator Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez slaughtered 10,000 in the infamous Matanza, or massacre, setting a standard of swift, violent response to protest, which would be emulated by a long succession of dictatorships. And, so it is maintained by the FMLN, closed the door to any possibility of peaceful change in El Salvador. It is appropriate that in modern El Salvador, the Revolutionary Army is named for Marti, while a right-wing death squad is named for Hernandez. It has made statements in support of Ronald Reagan. The Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez Brigade is in the habit of leaving the following note on mutilated corpses. With Reagan, we will eliminate the miscreants and subversives from El Salvador and Central America. Other notes left on corpses by the group have read, Long live the massacre of 1932. There is also a Salvadoran death squad called the Falange, an acronym for Fuerzas Armadas de Liberación Nacional Guerra de Exterminación, or Armed Forces of National Liberation slash War of Extermination. Hernandez stayed in power with U.S. support until 1944. He was followed by a string of dictators and coups, while in Nicaragua, the Somoza dynasty, also with U.S. support, established itself. That is the uh, three-generation personal dictatorship of one family, the Somozas. In the 70s, as revolutionary movements began to gain ground in Central America, the U.S. once again began to take a more active role in the region. By the 80s, the Central American conflict had developed into a U.S. proxy war. The Spanish conflict had been a proxy war for the Axis and the USSR. The political landscape has shifted. History repeats itself, but never exactly. In Spain, the anarchist Deruti had assassinated the right-wing Archbishop of Saragossa. In El Salvador, a right-wing death squad assassinated the liberation theologist Archbishop Oscar Romero in 1980. But certain dynamics which were at work in Spain in the 30s are at work in Latin America now. The most important thing to recognize is that by backing authoritarians, the official euphemism for the de facto neo-fascist like Pinochet, the Nicaraguan Contras, and the Salvadoran military, the United States is playing exactly the same role in Latin America that Germany and Italy played in Spain. The only important difference is that while Germany and Italy were themselves fascist, the United States aids fascism abroad while maintaining democracy within its own borders. We can only hope that this contradiction will be the undoing of this dynamic. Widespread protest, resistance, and political activism in the United States could call a halt to the Central American proxy war. However, at the moment, mass media indoctrination seems to be rendering the United States democracy almost irrelevant. The Spanish Civil War was also a prelude to a much larger war. 
the most destructive war the world has ever seen. Technological advances in aircraft and rocketry had dramatically increased the destructive potential of war. Hitler no doubt saw Spain as the testing ground for these new advances. Today, advances, I'm using that word in quotes, of course, in missilery, command control and communication systems, nuclear weaponry, chemical weaponry, and biological weaponry, have yet again exponentially increased the destructive potential of war. If U.S. involvement escalates, Central America could turn out to be the testing ground for these new advances. It is not inconceivable. Nixon strongly considered using atomic weaponry against North Vietnam. If the Central America conflict turns out to be a prelude to another world war, there could be destruction of unprecedented magnitude and such unimaginable agony that the survivors would envy the dead. And I'm just going to interject here to note the uh, use of the um, ultra-high-tech but still not battle-tested stealth fighter in the 1989 U.S. invasion of Panama, destroying the civilian neighborhood of Chorillo. Uh, Les Aspen, head of the U.S. Armed Services Committee, would deny that the stealth had any valid military purpose in the invasion, deriding its use as showbiz. However, the stealth would prove quite useful in the massive aerial bombardment of Iraq a year and a half later, just as the German Stukas tested at Guernica would later prove useful against Britain. Okay, returning to uh, my text from back in the day. The most important element of the Spanish Civil War, which is absent from the current situation in Central America, is anarchism. Perhaps this is because the Spanish Revolution was seen by the leftist intelligentsia around the globe as the testing ground for anarchism, and it was perceived that anarchism could not hold its own. Even before the fascist victory, the revolutionary gains of the anarchists had been largely obliterated by the communist reaction. In Central America, as elsewhere, the left almost universally perceives anarchism as impractical, irresponsible, immature, and completely unworkable. The collectives of Catalonia and Saragossa are part of a hidden history, which has been written out of the official histories. Anarchism has merely been dismissed, so that historians have rarely asked and never answered one of the most vital questions to come out of the Spanish Civil War. How can anarchism defend itself from its many enemies, left, right, communist, capitalist, democratic, and totalitarian, without completely negating everything that anarchism stands for? Rather than face this difficult question, the historians choose to misrepresent the complex, profoundly radical, and multifaceted political philosophy of anarchism as mere mindless dogmatism and violence worship. Ironically, the very things which are characteristic of totalitarian governments. Undoubtedly, the Spanish anarchists were violent and dogmatic, but no more so than any other political tendency that was vying for power in that turbulent era, and indeed, a good deal less so than many. Despite the violence, the dogmatism, 
and the apparent self-contradictions, Spanish anarchism made more progress than any other social experiment before or since in transcending that seemingly inevitable human tendency to create both personal relationships and political systems that resemble the pecking order of barnyard chickens. Bill Weinberg, Brooklyn, New York, September 1986. <laughs> okay, before we have a, uh, a little discussion about the contemporary significance of all of this, just a few things to uh, briefly update. The ETA, of course, laid down arms a few years ago, but the uh, most significant um, actual independence movement has now um, emerged in Catalonia, which has seen massive protests and mobilizations and controversies in recent years over um, its bid to become an independent state. Uh, upon uh, the death of Franco in 1975, Spanish Morocco was indeed returned to Moroccan sovereignty, with the exception of the two enclaves of Ceuta and Melilla. And then further south, there was the territory of um, Spanish Sahara, which was annexed by Morocco as Spain withdrew, setting off a, a war and political controversy, which continued to this very day, an independence movement now fighting against the Moroccan occupation. Okay, I refer to um, the Soviet spy agency as OGPU, going with uh, what I actually wrote back in the day, but um, I'm pretty sure that by... Uh, 1936, it had already become the NKVD, the really blood-drenched Stalin-era agency, which would later become the KGB, and finally the FSB, from which uh, Vladimir Putin emerged. More to say about him later. Okay, I should give some uh, tips on the books, which were the sources for my research back in the day. Uh, particularly, you know, on this whole um, experience of the, the Spanish anarchists in Catalonia, which has been, been given very, very short shrift by, you know, the standard mainstream historians, the most significant of which is um, Hugh Thomas, his book, The Spanish Civil War. Great book, but he really doesn't uh, give the anarchists the treatment that they deserved. So to get that story, I strongly uh, recommend... Anarchist in the Spanish Revolution by Jose Pierretz, who was actually a veteran of the movement, and uh, two books by a couple of American anarchists who I am proud to say that I actually knew and got to spend time hanging out with. The Anarchist Collectives, Workers' Self-Management in the Spanish Revolution, 1936 to 1939, by Sam Dalgoff, and The Spanish Anarchists, the Heroic Years, 1868 to 1936, by Murray Bookchin. And I'm uh, going to also mention and read a little bit from a uh, another book by Murray Bookchin, which had not yet been written when I uh, was writing back in the 1980s. His last book, The Next Revolution, posthumously published, a collection of um, his late essays on his vision of direct democracy through popular assemblies. And uh, late in life, I should say that, uh, you know, Bookchin repudiated anarchism for what he called 
communalism or libertarian municipalism. And of course, throughout this discussion, we mean libertarian in its original sense of anti-authoritarian. Definitely not its more contemporary sense of laissez-faire capitalist, just to clear that up. Uh, so uh, Bookchin's libertarian municipalism sees the municipality as the highest level at which direct self-government is possible, with higher levels conceived as confederations of such self-governing entities. And uh, this book, The Next Revolution, makes clear that um, he sought to, quote, replace the nation-state with a confederation of municipalities. So he was still advancing a model in which decision-making power flows up from below, as opposed to being imposed down from above. So this can be seen as a kind of a compromise between a pure anarchist position and a more pragmatic conception of power. And I'm going to read from uh, his essay in that book, Anarchism and Power in the Spanish Revolution, in which he uh, relates an episode in Barcelona in 1936, which I had not been aware of until I read this book from the text. On July 23rd, two days after the workers had defeated the local Francoist uprising, a Catalan regional plenum of the CNT convened in Barcelona to decide what to do with the polity the workers had placed in the union's hands. A few delegates from the militant Bajo de Llobregat region on the outskirts of the city fervently demanded that the plenum declare libertarian communism and the end of the old political and social order. That is, the workers that the CNT professed to lead were offering to give the plenum the power that they had already captured, and the society their militants had in fact begun to transform. Even if it were no more permanent than the Paris Commune, such a step would have produced a Barcelona Commune of even more memorable dimensions. But to the astonishment of many militants in the Union, the plenum's members were reluctant to take this decisive measure. The Bajo de Llobregat delegates and the CNT militant Juan Garcia Oliver, to their lasting credit, tried to get the plenum to claim the power it already possessed. But the oratory of Federica Monsigny and the arguments of Diego Abad de Santillan, two CNT leaders, persuaded the plenum not to undertake this move denouncing it as a Bolshevik seizure of power. The monumental nature of this error should be fully appreciated because it reveals all that is internally contradictory about anarchist ideology. By refusing to exercise the power they had already acquired, the plenum did not eliminate power as such. It merely transferred it from its own hands to those of its most treacherous allies, with the word allies in quotation marks. If we are to learn anything from this crucial error by the CNT leadership, 
it is that power cannot be abolished. Power that is not in the hands of the masses must inevitably fall into the hands of their oppressors. End quote. From uh, Murray Bookchin's essay, Anarchism and Power in the Spanish Revolution. From the book, The Next Revolution, Popular Assemblies and the Promise of Direct Democracy by Murray Bookchin, published by Verso Books in 2015. But exercising power, especially under siege conditions, such as Spain faced in the 1930s and Nicaragua faced in the 1980s, with the United States imposing an economic embargo, mining its harbors, and sponsoring the right-wing Contra insurgency for Contra Revolucionarios, counter-revolutionaries, maintaining power in exercising power in these kinds of siege conditions inevitably risks anarchism or left libertarianism betraying everything that it stands for. Now, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, the FSLN, which took power in Nicaragua on July 19th, 1979, was definitely, you know, much more Leninist and Moscow line than uh, their forebear, Augusto Cesar Sandino, had been, who was kind of at least a quasi-anarchist. But there was a, uh, a certain anarchistic element of the Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979 in the peasant land seizures, which were going on around the country as the Sandinista guerrillas were seizing the cities. And these were mostly led by the independent campesino organization, the ATC, the Association of Rural Workers, Asociación de Trabajadores del Campo, which was later co-opted into an arm of the Sandinista regime. But still, there was a, a moment, at least, where there was at least a, an anarchistic element to the Nicaraguan Revolution of 1979. And certainly the, you know, hand of the most authoritarian figures in the regime was strengthened by the siege conditions being imposed by the Reagan administration and later continued by the Poppy Bush administration. And was in these um, siege conditions that in 1990, the Sandinistas were voted out of power. And then we jump forward to what's going on today, which is a particularly painful and ironic situation in Nicaragua where Daniel Ortega, who had been the president back in the, back in the 80s, is the president once again, but with a significant difference that back in the 80s, he had been the head of a directorate. He was officially the head of state, but he was answerable to the directorate of which he was a member in a system of democratic centralism, as it was called, whereas today he is back in power as a mere caudillo consolidating a simple personalistic dictatorship, which is perhaps populist, but certainly not revolutionary, and has faced protest from the peasantry over land grabs and such. And abortion remains illegal in Nicaragua, even as it has been decriminalized in recent years in Mexico, Argentina, and Colombia. And many of the old Sandinistas, so to speak, from the 1970s and 1980s, are now being imprisoned and persecuted in Ortega's Nicaragua. I'm going to particularly note the former Sandinista Minister of Health, 
Dora Maria Tejas, who had been known as Commander Two when, when she was a, uh, a guerrilla leader back in the 1970s. She has now been imprisoned for over a year by her former comrade Daniel Ortega, merely for speaking out against his increasingly autocratic rule. And uh, her supporters posted the following statement on social media on July 19th, quote, in honor of July 19th, Nicaragua's Revolution Day, a post to honor Dora Maria Teas and an urgent cry for help. We just received reports of Dora's health deteriorating in prison, where she is held in isolation with no sunlight. She has been detained in prison for over 400 days already by the Ortega government in the country she helped bring to independence with over seven years left to serve on a sentence of conspiracy against the Ortega regime, end quote. So I say down with Caudillo Ortega and free Dora Maria Tejas. Okay, now let's turn our attention to July 19th, 2012, when the uh, rule of the fascist Bashar Assad regime collapsed in the region of northern Syria, known to the local Kurdish population as Rojava, and the revolutionary Kurds of Rojava were able to establish their autonomous zone, which persists today, although its territory has been reduced by Turkish aggression, as we shall see, and they put in place an explicitly Bukchin-influenced utopian experiment in direct democracy through popular assemblies, which many anarchists around the world have been very inspired by, including myself. But I also must note, which many of my anarchist comrades do not want to hear, that the Rojava leadership is accused by the Arab revolutionary leadership in Syria with some justice of collaborating with the United States and the Assad regime. First, they made a pact with the Pentagon in 2014 to receive aid and coordinate with airstrikes and to accept Green Berets embedded in their militias to fight against ISIS, which was besieging their territory. And after ISIS was defeated and they were betrayed by the U.S., and Turkey invaded their territory in 2019, they were forced into an alliance with the fascist Assad regime that they had driven from their territory in 2012. A very painful irony. And it's an uneasy alliance and an alliance of convenience, because certainly the Assad regime is absolutely intransigent on the question of Kurdish autonomy. But it's an alliance made on the basis of mutual enemies, in this case Turkey, just as their alliance had been with the United States, in that case ISIS. And the Rojava authorities, and I use that word quite intentionally because that's what they are, have been implicated in human rights abuses of their own, as we have discussed before on this podcast. And um, this also relates to the question that we have been discussing of... uh, the position of the anarchist militias resisting the Russians in Ukraine, and to what extent they are being forced to accept an accommodation with the bourgeois democratic state 
in Kyiv. And the Ukraine war reveals that just as Spain was a test war for Hitler, Syria was a test war for Putin. And with the Ukraine war threatening to escalate and draw in NATO with potentially unthinkable consequences, we are now paying for the world's betrayal of Syria in the years since the revolution there began in 2011, just as the world paid for its betrayal of Spain in 1939. And finally, I'll just have a uh, word to say about the situation here in the United States, where I noted that um, back in the 1980s, Reagan flirted with fascism and promoted it abroad, while the United States still remained internally a democracy. Well, now in Donald Trump, we face a figure who has completely embraced fascism, even if he stopped just short of actually calling it that, and who clearly has ambitions of imposing a dictatorship here at home. And we are almost certainly going to be facing a reckoning with that in the next couple of years here in the United States. And we'll have more to say about that on our next podcast. Stay tuned. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.